okay, because I'm going to see what I can do to screw that up. <laughs> let, me begin by, let me begin by asking you to think about this, and this is another one of those things, don't shout it out, I just want you to think about it. What is a really hard thing that you've had to endure? I want you to just go back for a second and, and ask yourself, have you ever endured something that just seemed like it was going on and on and it, it wouldn't let up and, and you just had to get through it? You just had to endure because you couldn't get out. Um, I was thinking about this because a couple weeks ago uh, was the uh, LA Marathon, right? Which I would have run, but it was on Sunday. <laughs> I have to be here. But... Um, at least, I know at least two people in our church that ran the LA Marathon and finished, right? Raul ran it. It was the day after his 60th birthday, he ran it. Yep. And Randy ran it. And Randy's nowhere near 60, but he finished a lot earlier than Raul. So, um, you know, so... You know, all of the marathons that I have run, <clears throat> um, I haven't run any marathons. But, but I heard, I talked to both of these guys afterwards, you know, they were limping for a couple of weeks like this, and, and, I, and tell me about it, what was it like? And, and everybody that I talked to that runs a marathon, and this is why I don't run marathons, has said, you know, there, there comes a point where just nothing in your body works right. And I mean, if you're not trained for marathon running, if this is not, you know, your thing where you do this all the time, if this is a huge stretch for you, then your body just begins to say, no more. It just begins to shut down. Raw was telling me that when he, when he finished, he was, his, his legs were in just so much pain, and, and you know the people greet you at the line, and they're waiting for you, your, your family in there cheering for you, and all that kind of stuff. They give you this incredible medal, looks like you won the Olympics or something. But um, he said to the people that were picking him up, okay, where's the car? And they said, well, you know, we can't get in here. With this. It's two, three miles that way. <laughs> and Rawls said, I'll be sitting here, <laughs> go and get the car, right? Because you run 26.2 miles, you're not going any further than you have to go. But there's, a, there's a, an incredible uh, kind of endurance that is required to do something like that. Um, so, so let me switch. Maybe you haven't run a marathon. Here's the question for some of you ladies who have had children. Labor, not so great, Right? <laughs> right? Um, so let's just do it. I love when people get into this uh, comparing their labor um, terror. But um, so raise your hand, moms, if you, ha if you had at least 12 hours of labor with one of your kids. Okay, leave your hands up. Leave your hands up. And okay, um, and leave them up if, if you had at least 16 hours of labor. Okay, 20? <laughs> 24? Oh, yes, <laughs> uh, 30? No. no? All right. So, so and you, you can walk and everything now, right? Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, when you get done, the baby is kind of really cool and you're really glad about that, right? But during the whole 30 hours of trying to get to that... Um, it's tough, and it takes endurance. And what's amazing is, that's just the beginning of parenting. 
And that takes a real endurance, amen? amen. Yeah. And so, so, you know, sometimes you got to endure hard stuff. You, you, you lose a loved one. You, you go through a divorce. You, you, you have a, a, some sort of disease or illness or, or an ongoing pain. You know, there's so many people who just live with chronic pain, always in pain. And, and they have a choice. Do I, do I just you know, lay in bed every day, 24 hours a day, or do I just deal with the pain and do the best I can and get into life? And some of you in this room, I know, deal with chronic pain. And you know what it's like to just have to endure and endure and endure. Some of you go every day to a job that you hate, and you just have to endure it. And the list goes on and on and on. But whatever's on your list, rest assured, we have a list. All of us have a list of things that are hard for us to endure, that we have to endure. It's part of the human condition. It's just a part of living in this world that we have to endure suffering sometimes. Nobody gets through this life without it. And as we enter into Holy Week, we're going to be remembering some of the darkest moments in human history this week. You're going to be invited and encouraged to, to sort of delve into a dark, dark season in history, a time in which evil almost had the victory, and a time in which the suffering was so profound that it's almost impossible for us to comprehend. It's a time for me and other preachers all over the world to try to come up with ways to describe the anguish, the pain, the, the horror of the cross, and we can never get there. We can never help people to fully understand because we don't fully understand. What Jesus went through for us is so horrific and so overwhelming, and it's hard to think about. It's hard to fully comprehend, and it is even harder to admit to ourselves that it's our fault, that the cross is about us. But here we are, we're face to face with the cross of Jesus Christ and we have to face it. We have to consider it and we have to grapple with what it means. But keep in mind, we just have to think about it. Jesus had to live it. And he did it because he loves us that much. And sometimes... In the, in the course of our lives, especially if we've been Christians a long time, been around the church a long time, been raised in a Christian family or something like that, we become just so accustomed to the story of Good Friday and so accustomed to the story of Easter, so accustomed to the trials and the beatings and the mockings and the scourgings, so accustomed to the, to the nails and the cross, so accustomed to the final words of Jesus on the cross that we can easily just sort of take a deep breath and go, yeah, I know this story, I've heard it before, but I think it's so important for us to enter in. I think it's so important for us to really, really ask the Lord to open our hearts and our eyes and our minds and help us to grapple with what it is that Jesus did for us and, and perhaps as important as what he did for us, why he did it. He did it because he loves us. Now, we've been the last few weeks in Luke chapter 22. I want you to go back there with me again. We're going to be in Luke 22, third book of the New Testament, and I just want to give you another picture of what was going on 
on the road to the cross. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39, the Last Supper is ended, and here we go. He came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up, pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. Chances are you've heard it before. But I want you to get it in context. I want you to remember that he's just spent this incredible time with his disciples. It's their, the, the, the Last Supper is just filled with these highs and lows, right? There's his, his explanation of the new covenant, the, the sharing of the celebration of the Passover meal. There's the whole sharing in the wine and the bread and, and all that that entails. There's the example that he sets when he kneels down and washes their feet, and then he calls them to do that for one another. And then there's those moments when they just look like idiots because they're arguing with one another about who is the greatest while Jesus is on his knees washing their feet. And, and there's the moment when he says, you know, one of you is going to betray me. And he calls out Judas. And Judas gets up and leaves the room to go about his business. And now his 12 disciples are 11. And Jesus leads them out. The scripture tells us that when you, when you put together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of these last days, you get a pretty full picture, each of them giving us a glimpse, a different glimpse of what happens. But when you put it all together, we know that they shared in the, in the wine and they shared in the bread, and then they sang a hymn and they departed. And they went to this place called the Mount of Olives. It was Jesus' favorite place. It was a place they went again and again. It was normal for them to go there. It was his prayer area. It was kind of a prayer mountain to him. It's only about uh, 400 feet in elevation above where they were in the city. And they climb up into the, into the wooded area. And they get into this beautiful garden that is just set aside. And it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means oil press. It, it's, it's an olive grove where they... They take the olives and they put it into a press and there's this giant press that, that sort of works on gears and a mechanism that squashes the olives and squeezes and squeezes and squeezes until the oil comes out and they purify the oil there and they create this olive oil that they use in all of their food and all of their customs. And there he is at the place of the oil press. And as he enters, when we put these four Gospels together, we see that of the 11 remaining disciples... Eight of them are left sort of near the entrance to the garden. And he says to three of them, Peter, James, and John, I want you to come with me. And he leaves these eight here and he asks them to pray. And he goes out with Peter, James, and John. And then when they get further into the garden, he leaves them and he goes about a stone's throw away from them. And he says to them, I want you to pray. And he goes off to pray himself. It's so interesting that he calls them to pray and what he calls them to pray about, but we'll get to that in just a second. This is where, in the story 
of Jesus and His ministry, this is where the tone shifts. This is where the, the movie, if you will, goes from being upbeat and interesting and, and all of a sudden it becomes darker and suddenly the music changes and, and suddenly it's different and suddenly you realize we're coming to a scary time. We're coming to a dark place. And the tone takes that dramatic shift. It's like, I remember this as a child. Every year, it was once a year, back, remember those in the days when we had like 10 channels and it came on whatever channel once a year, and the movie was The Wizard of Oz. And my family would always gather and we would get popcorn and we would sit down and watch The Wizard of Oz. It was a once a year thing. And I remember having seen the movie a few times, but still being a little kid, I remember there was this place... There, this is a spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, okay? I think it was like 1934 it came out, so if you haven't seen it yet, this is a spoiler. Um, Dorothy gets taken captive by the witch, right? And the, and the witch is, is going to drown her dog, and the witch is going to try to kill her in order to get the slippers. And I, I remember always sitting there at that time knowing this is the scary time. This is where the, that scary witch she just going to kill this girl. And I remember I used to sit with my hands like this and just peek through the, through the fingers and then I could cover it up whenever I wanted to because you could tell everything about the movie was becoming ominous and there was something terrifying happening. It's exactly what's happening. As you get to this place in your Bible and as you start to read the story of Gethsemane, you should probably put one hand in front of your face and just sort of read between your fingers because this is scary stuff. Everything from this point on is dark. It's painful. It's about death and blood and hatred. And we got to watch it. And when we come together this Friday night, we're going to focus on the darkest parts of it. And we're going to see what happens when Jesus actually says yes, but we're getting ahead of ourselves because in this story, he's still thinking about it. In this story, he's actually crying out to the Father and asking that maybe this wouldn't have to happen. And, and it's a horrible story. In Luke's account that we just read, he sweats blood. The pressure builds up in him so much that he begins to sweat great drops of blood. The capillaries under his skin begin to burst under the blood pressure that he's facing, and it mixes with his sweat, and he becomes covered with this sort of red, oily, sweaty, bloody mess. And in Luke's account, we're also told that it got so far that an angel had to be sent from heaven to come and minister to him. Otherwise, he might have died right there in the garden under the pressure of what he was facing. Doctors today tell us that this does happen. People sweat blood. It's very rare, but it can happen. And it happens when your blood pressure gets to a certain point under incredible stress or incredible anxiety. And it's almost unheard of that a person who sweats blood lives. And the angel has to come and minister to him there in the garden as he's facing this. And the beatings haven't begun yet. And the scourging hasn't begun yet. And all of the mockery and all of the vitriol and all of the hatred, it hasn't begun yet. He's not hanging on a cross here, but he's so close to death that an angel has to come. In Matthew's account, he says, my soul is grieved to the point of death. 
his heart is breaking within him to the point where it's not clear if he's going to live or die. In Mark's account, he falls down again and again under the weight of the pressure that is upon him. Just as he tries to walk further into the garden, boom, he falls on his face and he gets up and he comes back out and talks to his disciples and he comes and boom, he falls on his face again. And we see this incredible, incredible anguish that he's going through. Jesus, the Holy One, the sinless man, is undergoing extreme temptation. It's a time of temptation. And you guys, temptation is something that we all know something about, right? <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. We all understand temptation. We all face it. We all have times where, where we're just overwhelmed. We all have times of extreme sadness and sorrow and grief. Some of us can relate to something like what he's going through at some level at least. We all are tempted. We all want things that we know we should not have. It's a part of reality of living in the flesh and living in this world. Until we get to heaven, we're still going to deal with it. That's the way it is. Satan is a tempter. Thank God we haven't had to go through what Jesus went through on that night. But we all know what it's like to undergo extreme seasons of temptation. It's a universal experience. There's only really one temptation when you boil it all down. We see it again and again throughout the Scriptures. We see it in our own lives, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the tempter comes to tempt Adam and Eve, and, and basically he says, you know, has God said you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? He begins with a lie. And they, they say, no, no, he just says we can't eat from this tree that's in the middle of the garden, otherwise we'll die. And he lies again and says, you surely shall not die. And here comes the temptation. But God knows that if you eat from this tree, you will become like God. You should call his bluff. You should call God out. You should determine that you will control the path of your life. That you're not going to let some faraway God tell you what it is you should do and how you should live and what's not okay for you. You be the king of your own destiny. You be the one who decides what you will do. You be your own God. That's the temptation. And every single time you have given in to any kind of temptation, and every time I've given in to temptation, it has always been the same temptation. Satan comes along and he says, here's the deal. At least in this moment, at least in this issue, at least for now, be your own God. That's the temptation. At least for now, let your will trump God's will. Be your own king. And the temptation is always the same, no matter what form it comes in, no matter how often it comes, the temptation is always the same. It's just worded differently. When he asked the disciples to pray in the garden, Jesus, he didn't ask them to pray for him. I mean, look what he was going through. And when he asked them to pray, he did not ask them to pray for him. He asked them to pray for who? Themselves. 
He asked them to pray for themselves. Look again, verse 40. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is going to be a time of temptation, guys. Pray that you don't enter into it. Verse 46. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He has them praying for themselves. And by the way, guys, this is totally in keeping with his purpose for all of this. Remember this. Jesus came for us. He came because he loves us. He came because he cares about us. He came because he wanted us to experience life abundantly. He came because we were lost and we needed to be found. He came because we were stuck and we needed to be set free. He came for us not for himself. And as we watch these next few pages unfold and we see him walk all the way to the cross, we're going to see this unbelievable picture of what it is like to live your life on purpose when your purpose is to care for others. He does what hurts himself in order to do what's best for us. He came for us. His concern has always been for us. He knows who he is. John tells us, He knows who he is, where he came from, and where he's going back to. He doesn't have any kind of fear about eternity. He doesn't have any kind of fear ruling his life whatsoever. He knows who he is. He knows what he has power over. He knows where he's going. He knows that he is going to be the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He never lost sight of that. He knows exactly what's up for him. He's not worried about himself. His concern is for us. And so what did he tell them to pray for? He tells them to pray that they will not enter into temptation. And that's always been an interesting phrase to me. Pray that you will not enter into temptation. He doesn't ask them to pray that they will not be tempted. We don't avoid temptation. It's part of life. It happens. We're still in the flesh. We're dealing with an enemy who is a tempter. This world system is set up so that we will be tempted. Temptation is normal. It is a part of life. And Jesus doesn't pray or tell us to pray that we won't be tempted. He says, pray that you will not enter into the temptation. And and when you look that up in the Greek, you see that basically it it, it would be uh, translated something like this. Pray that you are not overwhelmed by temptation. Pray that you do not fall into the hole of temptation. Pray that you do not drown in the temptation. Pray that you will not be surrounded by, overcome by the temptation, that you will enter into the temptation. That's the danger. It's not a danger to be tempted. We're all able to resist temptation if we're in Christ. But if we don't resist, we enter in. When you enter into temptation, it gets real ugly. Just ask Judas. This is where the real battle of the garden took place for Jesus. This is a terrible trial. Jesus is fighting temptation. His disciples are fighting temptation. And Jesus had a choice. He can run and hide at this point. He can abandon his mission and give up what he came for. 
and refuse to go to the cross. Remember, the scripture tells us he is the king of kings and lord of lords. There is at every moment at his disposal the entire host of heaven. He can call down angels at any moment and wipe out everybody who is attacking him. He can deliver himself without any difficulty. But he didn't come to deliver himself. He came to deliver us. He had a purpose. And so he refuses to enter into temptation. In fact, Flip in your Bibles to the back over to Hebrews. If you get to the book of James or, or 1 Peter, you've gone too far. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. And in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, let me just read this to you. We'll, we'll start in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our great high priest knows what it is to be tempted and knows what it is to not enter into the temptation. And here's where the battle's being fought for him. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus prayed at least three times that we know of in the garden, the oil press, as the pressure was pressing down upon him, as he prays in the oil press that he would not have to drink the cup. Three times, same prayer. I don't want to drink the cup. Please don't make me drink the cup. Please let this cup pass from me. And he keeps talking about this cup. What is this cup that Jesus is dreading so much that he's going to have to drink? Most of us would say, well, it's the cross. It's the suffering. It's the whole crucifixion. But that's only a small picture of it because as we study this concept of the cup in Scripture, what we find out is that this is referring to a specific cup containing a specific substance, if you will. Now take your Bibles and go with me to Psalm chapter 75. Middle of your Bible, just open it to the middle, you'll be in Psalms. Psalm chapter 75, and we're going to pick it up in verses 7 and 8. And we're going to bounce around and look at a couple of verses here so we get an understanding of what we're talking about. Please let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? Psalm 75, verse 7. But God is the judge. We don't like to think of him as a judge but he is a judge, and he is a wrathful judge. God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. There's a cup that God holds that the wicked have to drink. It's a cup that is going to be poured out upon those who have chosen sin over God. There's a cup. God speaks of the same cup of His wrath in, in Isaiah chapter 51 where He says that all of Israel is going to have to drink from this cup if they will not repent and turn back to the Lord. 
He talks about it again in Jeremiah chapter 25, where he says, even the Gentiles, all of the nations of the earth, are going to have to drink from the cup of his wrath unless they turn and come back to God. So whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, if you are lost in your sin, you're going to drink from this cup, the Bible says, and it's the cup of the wrath of God. And everywhere in the Old Testament where it speaks of a cup like this, it's always talking about the wrath of God, the actual judgment of God that will be poured out upon those who are lost in their sin. That's why Paul tells us in Romans that we are all subject to the wrath of God, Jews and Gentiles alike. There's a cup, you remember? In the Last Supper that Jesus held up and offered to them, it was a cup of grace, a new covenant in His blood, a cup, a reminder that they wouldn't have to drink the cup of God's wrath if instead they took the cup of His grace. And so we have this picture now, this juxtaposition of the cup of God's grace on the one hand offered to them and the cup of God's wrath on the other hand. And Jesus is dealing in the garden with the fact that when He goes to the cross, He will have the cup of God's wrath fully poured out upon Him. Somebody's got to take the wrath of God. And it's going to be poured out upon Him. The cup that Jesus dreads is the cup of God's wrath. The physical suffering of the cross was overwhelming, almost incomprehensible, but that was not the worst of it. It's the wrath of God. It's when He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Remember the story on the cross? When the, when the sky becomes dark, for three hours darkness rules over the land, and for those three hours, Jesus cries out and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, the, and the, the wrath of God is being poured out upon him. The wrath of everyone who would accept the cup of grace is now being poured upon the one who is the source of that grace. And he was tempted to avoid the cross with the wrath that came with it. With all the guilt and all the shame. So what did he do in the midst of his anguish and dread? He cries out to God. He's sweating blood. He's dropping and falling on his face. He's so dreading this wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon him. So what does he do? He cries out. He cries out to the Father, help me, deliver me. Don't make me go through this. He cries out. Listen, guys. Is it okay to cry out to God when you are struggling and overwhelmed and don't think you could take another step? Is that okay? It's not just okay, it's commanded. Don't forget Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. It says that we are to approach God with all prayer and supplication and thanksgiving to let our requests be made known to Him. Supplication means that crying out, that begging for relief. We're supposed to come to God with that. Sometimes life's trials seem like too much to endure. Jesus had already done so much. He'd left the throne of heaven and lived this life as a human being and all that that in included. But this seemed like it would be too much. Of course, the physical, mental, and emotional suffering would be overwhelming for Jesus. But it was this cup that he dreaded. And, and he cries out to the Father and he says, can we not come up with a plan B here? Now that I'm facing it, now that it's right here, 
is there not some other way? If there's any other way to save them. But Jesus is plan A and there is no plan B. And that's a fact. That's what the Bible means when it says, no one comes to the Father except through Him. We have to have our sins forgiven. And the only way they can be forgiven is if they're paid for. Jesus had to pay for our sins on the cross or we could not be forgiven. That's the price. And that price includes the pouring out of God's wrath. And that, my friends, is why Jesus came. And we're going to do this quickly. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Let's not forget, we're going to be looking at the cross this week. Hopefully you'll be thinking about the cross this week. I want you to get context. Understand why the cross happened. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is not the verse I'm looking for. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Let me see if it's 18. I wrote it down wrong. Yep, Matthew chapter 18, verse 11. Sorry. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. He came for this purpose. You guys know John 3.16, right? Go ahead and go over there anyway, just in case your memory fails you. Go to John chapter 3, verse 16, and listen to verses 16 and 17 of John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, that is to pour out that cup of wrath upon the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That's the whole reason He was sent. So that the world might be saved. Go over to John chapter 10 and look at verse 9. John 10, 9. And going on through verse 11. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is why he came. And our sin made all of this necessary. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered over to death because of our transgressions. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for sins once for all, just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 tells us that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the reason he came. Guys, listen, Good Friday is the reason Christmas matters. There'd be no Christmas if there wasn't going to be a Good Friday. The whole point of the incarnation is that Jesus is God, and as God, He cannot die. So He came to life and became a man as He came to earth, I should say. Became a man so that He could borrow death on our behalf and spend it on our redemption so that we could accept life by grace through faith. So these moments in the garden are the pivotal moments in the whole story. And Satan is just pouring on the temptation. But thank God 
For our sakes, Jesus did not enter into temptation. Instead, he said, not my will, but yours be done. He always lived to do the Father's will. That was his definition of success. John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. Let me just read it to you real quick. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Doing the Father's will is Jesus' definition of success. And by the way, we're given the same definition of success for our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 says, We should have as our ambition only one thing, to be pleasing to Him. That's what success is about. And by the way, we too can overcome temptation and live successfully. If you are in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives within you, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, we won't look it up, but you can write it in your notes. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that we all face temptation and the temptation that we face is common to all of us. But remember, no matter how faithless we may be, God is faithful and He gives us a way of escape with every temptation that comes so that we may be able to Endure it. There's that word again. Endure it. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He set an incredible example for us here. He knew what was coming, he knew how horrible it would be. He knew that there was nothing that he was going to like about the next hours that were coming in his life. Except for one thing. He would have a chance to be successful by doing the will of his Father. And so he walked out of that garden, having gone through all that he went through, with his face set toward the cross for one reason, that he said, not my will, but yours be done. And when the temptation came, he refused to buy into the lie that the first Adam had bought into. The lie that says, you know what, do it your own way. You have a better plan. Go your own direction. Be your own king. Jesus said, I will do the will of my Father. The cross was a terrible thing to endure. It would be painful. It would be shameful. It would be disgraceful in every way. Terrible. But he endured it. Why? Because he loves you. What are you having to endure today? What are you going through? I'm not, I'm not saying let's, let's dismiss our own suffering because Jesus' was worse. I, I'm being serious. Think about you, what you're having to endure right now. Trials, temptations, pain, suffering. Every time we're tempted, you and I have a decision to make. In this moment, in this thing, Who will be the Lord of my life? Will it be God or will it be me? Will it be my will or will it be my Father's will? Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. 
He didn't want to face the betrayals. He didn't want to face the arrest. He didn't want to face the mock trials. He didn't want to face the beatings. He didn't want to carry his own cross. He didn't want to deal with the shame. He didn't want to deal with the mockery. He didn't want to be spat upon and nailed to a tree. He didn't want to deal with any of the agony that he was going to be dealing with all surrounding the crucifixion. The cross is a terrible thing. And yet, we don't call it Terrible Friday. We call it Good Friday. Because he said... Not my will, but yours be done, Father. I will do whatever it is you call me to do because I admit that in this moment, my perspective is a little bit askew. In this moment, I'm not seeing things the way I ought to be. And I know, God, that your perspective is always right. See, we're all going to endure terrible things, but God has a rule about terrible things. He says that, Every terrible thing is going to be used by him in the life of the people that he loves and the people who love him to mold them and shape them and give them life abundantly. Today, that same Jesus who wept in the garden, the same Jesus who cried out from the cross, is seated at the right hand of the Father and every being bows down and gives him praise. Such are the results of enduring temptation and living successfully by doing the will of God. Death would come, but it would be swallowed up by victory. That's next week's sermon. (laughs) Come back for that one. For today, let's remember, Jesus chose the will of the Father That cursed, despised, hateful cross was God's tool to ransom His people from the death grip that sin had upon us. The burden was great, but Jesus bore it. And He did it for us. Why? Because He loves us that much. Come back on Friday. Come back again on Sunday to get the rest of the story. I'll I'll warn you, it gets worse before it gets better. But you're going to love the ending. Let's stand and pray together.